This episode of the Power Connect podcast is brought to you by Well Control International. We need some plow pointers. You know, you want some hard workers. You want some some people with some work ethic that, that are not just so gung ho. And, and because this is not really a business that you you want to go into and uh, and be all gung ho, it, it gets you killed. And uh, like I said, I, I treat every well like that I look at like it's going to be the one to kill me. Welcome into the Power Connect Podcast. I'm your host, Fred Davis. Episode number 36 of the program happening today. Hope everybody had a great Labor Day weekend. It is, uh, you can no longer wear white, uh, as they say, but you know what you can do? You can check out this excellent episode with one Mr. Hawkins Hawk Dunlap making his podcast debut and what a debut it was and I think you guys are going to certainly enjoy it as well a well control specialist 32 years in the oil field industry and does he have stories to tell and we only scratch the surface uh, of the stories and the experience that he has in the oil fields from across the globe one of only as we estimated maybe 50 people in the world that do exactly what Hawk Dunlap does and exactly what does Hawk Dunlap do? Well, stay tuned here in just a second and you're going to find out one of the better episodes we've done in quite some time. Uh, I certainly enjoyed it and I know you will too. But before we get to all that, as always, check out the Power Connect podcast. Follow us on Apple. Follow us on Spotify. Leave us a five star rating if you do. Why? It helps with the algorithm and listen to the entire podcast. Follow us on LinkedIn, Fred Davis, and the Power Connect page. We've got a lot of great episodes happening this week. The most electrified couple around, Don Wright, his wife, Electrified Veronica, Veronica Wright, and their incredible project. They're converting a 99 Jeep to an EV. Follow, like, subscribe. You know the drill. Leave the rating. You will be glad that you did. All right, let's get right down to today's episode, and a great episode it is. Hawk Dunlap, 32 years in the oil field business from across the entire world. Uh, you name it, he's been there. We talked a little bit about how a chance lunch meeting changed his entire life. Uh, the brain drain is taking place in the oil and gas business, but more importantly on the well control side, and what does that mean moving forward? Certainly, what does it mean forward for him and his company? Uh, also, too, how COVID affected his business overseas. We know a lot about how it affected here us in the United States, but what, did, what was the impact? that it had overseas. We talked to Hawk about that. Uh, he also gets into how he crossed paths with Sarah Stogner and, and had a tremendous impact uh, driving around the state of Texas and learning about the Texas political system and just the abandoned well problem that's going on in the state of Texas. And you might be surprised how maybe a country like Nigeria has actually got a better plan in place to fix its wells versus what's being done here. Very candid about the political system here in the state of Texas and kind of what he saw and what he's going to do moving forward now that he's relocated him and his family back to his home state of Texas. Great interview, great discussion from a born and bred Texan with global experience, seen the oil fields from across the world. So he's got a very, very wide perspective on how the oil and gas world works, literally. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I know I certainly did. Without further ado, from Well Control International, Mr. Hawk Dunlap. You know, I'm fourth generation in my family to work in oil and gas. And uh, in 1991, I got a summer job working on a rig while I was going to school at SFA. And, and uh, luckily, uh, I worked for a company that, that told me I could have a job as, as, as long as I kept going to school. And, and then I had a, I had a tool pusher that, that thought a lot of me. And uh, he told me that, uh, that I needed to get out and see the world. And, and next thing I know, I was, uh, I was on a plane to Holland and uh, was standing in a basket of a snubbing unit and didn't even really know what snubbing was at the time. And actually kind of traumatized by it. I, I, will, I will say this, I snub pipe just long enough to be dangerous and that's, that's good enough for me. And so, and so for the folks at home, what exactly is snubbing pipe? Uh, working with, <laughs> manipulating pipe on a well under pressure. <laughs> you gotta keep the same PG. <laughs> Surely you have an engineer that can that can beep out a few things that may come up. But no, it's it's, it's basically uh, working on uh, oil and gas wells under pressure, manipulating pipe into and out of the well bore. And then uh, in in 1996, I was I had come home from from working in the North Sea. Everybody was out. We were kind of busy, so uh, I had a uh, I had a supervisor that, that worked for Mr. Adair, and he had asked me to come in the shop and hang out. 
and uh, on my days off, so I did. Uh, and there happened to be a, a, a fire in, in Dombox, Texas, and we had the, the abrasive jet cutter. And I got, I got called down to, to bring that down, and we cut the BOP off a well for a, for a firefighting company. And, and that was my first fire. And I kind of figured that, was, that would be a pretty cool thing to do. And then uh, several years later, I got, to, uh, I got to talking to a few people that, that thought I'd, I'd make a good fit, and, uh, and we started. Uh, and I got hired on, and I started. And I, I started painting the floors in the shop and wiping equipment down with a rag and WD-40, and, and those guys would go on the job, and I'd send them equipment. And uh, I got left behind, and, and then one day, uh, one day I got my shot, and uh, just kind of went from there, you know. It, I had to do uh, had to do quite a few things in order to to get to that point. I had to be a safety man for a while. I had to be a H2S specialist for a while, and and uh, but you know finally I finally I got a shot, and, and uh, you know and, and that's kind of what I did. And, and we at that point in time we we didn't have the luxury of, of cherry picking or the jobs that we went on. You know you just went and did whatever you were told to do, and, and I was okay with that. And you know, so I, I got a pretty well-rounded education coming up, you know, through the ranks. And the diploma that I got from SFA just kind of somewhere in the closet, you know. It's, uh, <laughs> about the only time I've ever used it is to get a residence visa when I moved to Singapore. It's the only time I've ever had to show it. And uh, but, but my education came, you know, from the field and, and from, a, you know, some really, really, really great guys that mentored me and, and took me under their wing. And hit me in the head with a valve bar when I needed it and, uh, you know, woke me up, kept me from getting killed or hurt. And, you know, and, and that's kind of the way we came up. It was, it was all kind of old school. So, uh, you know, I just got lucky, you know, it, it was by accident. I, I was just, uh, I got picked and, and, uh, and I, and I did what I could with it. I worked for, for most of the major well control companies until I, until I started my own gig and, and, uh, I'm just not much of a, of a corporate player, and uh, I didn't fit into corporations very well. Too many rules. And started our own gig and, and incorporated in Singapore, and that's what we've been doing since. Tell me a little bit about that kind of that learning process, though. When you said going from, you know, you you went on your first well fire. You said what, 1996, 1997. You said you had to kind of you know pay your dues for the next couple of years before. You became a full-blown well specialist or a little bit about that, kind of how that maturation process went. Because I think to your point, you know, some folks kind of forget about that period of, you know, you had to go through some muck literally before you got to where you were trying to go. You know, I, I thought that was totally normal in anything. I mean, uh, you know, I, I went from running a workover rig to being on the pipe rack on the snubbing unit before I, I worked my way up into the basket. And then, uh, and then when I went into this to this business, uh, I started back in the warehouse, you know, building equipment and cleaning floors, and and uh, you know, I just thought any anytime you change something, you know, you you got to start at the bottom. I didn't really view it as paying dues. I just, you know, that was my job. That's that's what they were paying me to do. Now, granted, I didn't make as much money doing those those small things as as much as I you know was getting a day rate on a job. But nonetheless, I mean, I, I just figured that was just part of part of the deal and I, I never looked at it as you know having to run through the muck and and uh and, and that kind of thing i just i just figured that's that's what you did i mean I, I always thought you always started at the bottom you know there's a lot of people that, that jump in nowadays and they're fast tracked and i run a, i run into them globally you know it, it would have behooved them to uh spend a little bit of time you know mopping the floor in the warehouse before they they went and got the the, the office seat with a window view Tell me about that first well fire. There, there wasn't that much to it. If, if I remember correctly, the well had kicked on them and they had a couple of uh, lines crossed. I think they had, to, instead of having the uh, hydraulic hoses on the blind ramps, they had them crossed up to the, to the angler. Anyway, they, they had some equipment failures and the well came in and, and, and I, th- I think it killed one or two people. And then, you know, we got down there a day or so after it started. I was working with two great guys uh, who had both worked for, for Mr. Adair, and uh, and they worked me to death. And uh, that was that was a long 17-hour day, and, and it, it was a great day. One of the guys was, you know, after the job was over with and we got packed up, he uh, told me he was going to take me to a steak dinner. So we went to this little restaurant in Giddings, and they didn't have Budweiser in a can, and he got pissed off, so we ended up going to Sonic. And uh, and that's what I had for dinner. I never did get my steak dinner off that guy. (laughs) 
he was mad at him because they, they didn't have Budweiser in a can and he didn't drink Budweiser out of a bottle. I still hadn't figured that one out. I'd, Budweiser's Budweiser, <laughs> especially after a day like that. But he didn't see it the way I saw it. <laughs> so how old were you at this time? I was 26. So at 26, you've had, you know, you've already had global experience, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're a kid from, I mean, let's call it what it is. You're 26, you're still a kid. But what was it about that well fire and just that experience that was different? It was a, you know, it was a 17 hour rush. I mean, it, it was, it was hard work. It was hot work. We had, we had an equipment failure. We were backing in the cutter underneath the substructure and knocked one of the nozzles off and had to replace the nozzle. And I mean, right next to the fire. And, you know, it was just really, really hard work with really, really big equipment. And, uh, you know, and at, at that time, you know, I, was, I weighed about 320 pounds. I was a really big guy. And, uh, you know, it just kind of, it just kind of suited me. You know, I felt like that, that was where I needed to be. And, uh, you know, and, and then again, it, it was some time bef- after that before I before I got on another one. But uh, but nonetheless, that's that's where I, I felt like I wanted to be. So you had this experience, but this isn't one of those deals where you can just say, "Hey, how do I go back to doing something like that?" How what's that process like? Because obviously, this was something that I'm guessing you would have signed up for immediately if you could have. Right, and and I asked, I asked several people several questions, you know, and how, how do you get into it? And I, I get I get asked that a lot too, and, and I don't really have a definitive answer which to give anybody, you know, because you know it just kind of, you know, one day I get a phone call and say, hey, come to Houston back when Jimmy G's was open, and you know that's where all the oilfield guys had had lunch, and so you need to be at Jimmy G's tomorrow at eleven o'clock, and so I drove down from Longview the night before, got a hotel room was at Jimmy G's at eleven, and it was about an hour talk, and next thing I know I was hired. You know, and, and that was, you know, so, you know, somebody had saw me work, somebody had heard about me, you know, the, some of the supervisors that I'd worked with before had a good, you know, put in a good word for me and kind of pumped me up. And, and I, I, asked, I, asked, uh, I asked Donnie, who I work for, you know, who, who really got me the gig. And I said, hey, man, I said, is this really, you know, is this really a good career move for me? He said, he said, and he said, I'm going to tell you, he said, it's the best career move for you. I said, why is that? He said, because by the time you get to one of those jobs, everything is about as tore up as it's going to get, and you can't do any more damage. He said, the planet Earth will be better if you're doing that. And uh, so I, I took that as a, well, might as well go ahead and go do it, and, and, and that's kind of where I went. It was a complete surprise, and, and you'll find that, that most of the well control guys have, have snub piped for a, a lot longer than I did and did a hell of a lot better job of it than I did and probably didn't get as much pipe blown out of the hole as I did. You know, that's kind of the background of everybody. You know, you, you go through a pressure control type situation. I'm thinking of the guys right now, and most everybody that I know, the good good portion of them, they, they were active and, and they were snubbing hands. I mean, that's just where it came from. And uh, learning how learn how to deal with pressure and learning how to, how to work with it. So you almost have to snub pipe before you can be a well control specialist in some ways. You know, for, for the most part, you know, for most people that I worked with, yeah, that was, that was kind of the, the path, if you okay. would. You know, that's one of the stepping stones. I mean, there, there's guys from all over. There, there's guys that have never done anything but fires, and, and there's guys that, that come from an engineering background. But most of the people that, that I've worked with and I, I, can, I can think of that I've been real close to, they, they, they all went to snubbing route, and that's, that's kind of was the, the stepping stones to the to the bigs. Yeah. Did you have any apprehension? No, not really. I mean, uh, it, there wasn't, uh, you know, I, I had traveled so much by that point, you know. I mean, I actually, uh, my first trip to Holland, uh, had to, I had to ask my mom where Holland was, and I was a college graduate, you know. So I knew it was in Europe somewhere, but I had no idea. I couldn't have pointed to it on a map, you know. And uh, so, so at least I knew where some of these places were and, and had been to some of these places, and, and uh so, you know, it was just, man, I'm going to run over to Singapore. So that, you know, it's a Houston LAX and LAX to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Singapore back in those days, you know, and, and that was, I knew the route, had been flying it before. Just came back from West Africa from a job with, with a client that, that had a huge problem. You know, we, we may not work for the, for the big super majors or anything. It's, it's, and it's not so much that I want to, it's that, you know, it's a difficult it make it so difficult, and uh, and other companies are great companies with great people, and uh, and we kind of take the jobs in, in the places that nobody else wants, and I'm real comfortable with that, and uh, I get a lo- I get along in places like Nigeria and Angola and and Yemen and and 
in India and, and, and those kind of places. We get along real well. We, we have some really, really good relationships with the, with the people that we work with. And, uh, you know, things are done on, a, on the phone and, and with a handshake most of the time. And, and, you know, they call us when they have questions any time of the day. And, you know, and that, that's kind of the old school. That's, that's the way that, that the business used to be, you know. Uh, I'll try to recall the story, and I don't know how accurate it is, but they said that... Uh, one of the big, the largest gas operator when they were just getting getting started in the business burned a rig down up in Oklahoma and and they had called a couple of other companies and they all wanted money up front and the, and the owner of the of the company said, hey man, look, I don't, I don't have that much cash, but I'm in trouble. And he ended up calling uh, Boots and Coots and Coots Matthews answered the phone that day and, and he said, well, he said, and he told him, he said, I don't have that much money. He said, well, we'll come up there and we'll talk about money later. And they went up there and helped the guy out, and he ended up being one of their best customers. And uh, you know, and, and that's kind of the the old kind of old school mentality and and customer service that that we kind of base our business plan on. And uh, you know, I, I see too many times there's too much red tape and bureaucracy and and, and things of that nature. And and uh, you know, being a small company that we are, we can pretty much do what we want. And uh, and that's 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 our attitude. You know, you call us in the night you got a problem you know we'll, we'll come out we'll worry about the money later so walk folks through exactly what in, in boots and coots obviously that's the name of the, the now was that 20 years ago is that what you guys were called or did you kind of evolved or how did that well it, uh i think 2000 halliburton bought boots and coots in 2010 okay and then we i left in uh in 2012 gotcha yeah and so, and you sense incorporated your own. I mean, so you're kind of like free. You're basically uh, uh, entrepreneur for hire, right? Uh, essentially. Or well, I mean, we're an, we're an incorporated well control company in, in Singapore. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we're mercenary well control. I was going to say. I, mean, I, I, you know, I wanted to use that term. <laughs> 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 you do kill fires. So I mean, you know, you can make the world a little bit better place after you're done. So. But walk folks through, because again, this was something that, you know, it's almost kind of very movie-ish in, in the way you guys operate, right? Because again, you know, and, and of course, you and I met at the, the Sarah Stogner event uh, way back when, and we'll get to that here in just a little bit. But I mean, it's it's pretty fascinating what you guys do, right? I mean, it's essentially, you know, it's 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 obviously a, a traumatic event that's going on somewhere across the globe, and you know, like you said, they whether it's obviously during the day, but or it could be in the middle of the night, and they call you and your team up and say, "Look, we got a problem, a big problem, and we need you to come put it out." And that's exactly what you guys do. Right. It. Uh, I'll, I'll give an example. Last year, we had a, we had a client in uh, in Nigeria. They had uh, landed their seven-inch completion on a gas well. They had run in on losses, and while they were landing the hangar, they had turned the pumps off, and the well flipped on them. It blew out, and uh, about 2,400 psi blown up seven inches. A large volume of gas, and they they went to close their shear ramps and uh, to try to shear the landing joint, and the shear ramps wouldn't close. So that call, and, and they always come in the middle of the night. You know, you never have anybody call you while you're having lunch going, hey, man, I got a little problem you want to talk about. It's, you know, it's always between 1 and 3.30 in the morning. And, uh, and this guy happened to call at 2 o'clock, told me he had a problem, and, and I, was, uh, I was on a plane by 9.30 uh, that morning. That was, that was the first flight, and I was, I was flying from Bali. So I left Bali and went to, went to Jakarta, and they, they caught a flight to Qatar, then, then on over. And the whole time that I was flying, we were he was sharing information, and I was giving, uh, and I, I thought for sure this well was going to catch fire. And uh, you know, I was giving information to things to try, and and, uh, and and I got there, and and we got lucky, and we got closing unit didn't have enough fluid in it, and uh, we got some fluid in it, we got it to shear, we were able to pump into it, bullhead it, kill the well, and and then. Uh, Observed it for a few days, opened up, and, and, and did the recovery work and get some plugs in it and, and that nature. So, you know, things things like that worked out really well. But but I mean, from the from the time I, the call was seven hours from from the time you know I took the call to the time that I actually was seated on an airplane. And uh, and that's that's you know that's just the way it's it's, it's always been. You call, we come. Yeah. Uh, you know, and not every, and we had worked with this client before and, and, and had a good rapport with him, but and not everything is like that. I mean, sure, we, we do have some some commercial restraints. I mean, my uh, my my business partners, they, uh, they they tend to 
try to hope, you know, somebody calls me, I'm going, but they're like, whoa, 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 we got to work out the commercials, you know. I said, we all do that while I'm flying, you know. And, and, and typically we get, we're, we're in a position to do that. Not, not so much all the time, but, uh, you know, I, I like to think that, that we, we were that way. The customer and the, and, the, and the administration and our administration people, they can work out the details while the, while the men and the equipment that are en route to the to the location are, are actually traveling and trying to work the problem before we get there. And, and, you know, all that administration stuff can be done, you know, offline, you know. What do you see as usually the biggest cause of well issues? Wow. Um so for the for the most part, the the wells that I've been working on lately, with the exception of that one that I mentioned and the one that I just came off of, have mostly been aged production wells, and and what I mean by that wells that were uh, drilled like like for instance one that I did a couple of years ago was drilled in 1959. It was a gas injection well and it, it blew out through the through the completion string and then ruptured the casings and was blown out at surface and and. Uh, these aged wells, these are the ones, you know, that have really been extended past their design life cycle, and we're still trying to, to use them the best we can, but, you know, there's all kind of integrity issues and uh, maintenance things, and, and that's going to be, with these aging fields nowadays, that's going to be the go-to. I mean, we, we train our drilling guys, you know, in well control. I mean, they've, they've got to go to well control school every two years, and they have to pass this class, you know, so... If you're drilling or, or doing a workover, you know, you, you, you're going to get trained every couple of years. But the integrity side, what I'm seeing, the, the older wells, they don't get much attention. And these things are, some of them are just a ticking time bomb waiting. I mean, there's there's pressure on each analyst string that's, you know, it's not supposed to be there. And, and uh, you know, a lot of times operators won't spend money to try to reenter these wells because, you know, it's going to be an expensive fix. But yeah. They're still producing, so they don't want to, you know, they don't want to plug them, and it's expensive to drill another another well to replace it. So, you know, there's a an economic factor in looking after some of these things. But what's the cost if one of these things blows? Yeah, I think uh, I think I read something that you know you're you're looking at somewhere between with the loss of, of formation hydrocarbons and the cost of the rig and any other damages and fines and everything. I mean, I've, I've seen numbers anywhere from eight to twenty five million dollars. What are some of the more, God forbid, worst situations you've been into where, you know, you got fire going and it's all, you know, like you said, like your buddy said, it ain't going to get much worse than what, what it already is. There, there's been instances, you know, where we've had, you know, uh, we've had to drill relief wells, you know. I mean, that's that's a big part of the well control game. And uh, you have a well that, that can't be intervened at surface and, uh, you know, if it's, or, it's a, you know, it's, it's offshore, you know, the, the, the uh, Macondo was a relief well kill. We usually, on, on some particular jobs when they're on fire, we, we try to, to uh, concurrently, if we're doing a surface intervention, working on the well that's on fire, we also start preparing for uh, uh, building the location for a relief well and start bringing in a rig and start getting things ready in the event that we're unable to successfully intervene on it at surface, uh, which is what we were doing a couple of years ago. Just because of the age of the of the casing strings and, and the tubulars, you know, we, we did dig down... Uh, 33 feet and we found good casing we were able to get a cap on it and 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 divert the well but but there was a point in time there where we didn't think we were going to be fine be able to find any competent casing you know no matter how far down we dug and uh, to be able to 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 rehead and put a capping stack on it so you know at the same time that we were that we were working on the on the surface intervention we were preparing to, to, to drill a relief well so you know th- these things kind of go hand in hand at times and, and not everything is, is straightforward. I mean, yeah. every job is different. And, you know, the, the one that I just came off of in West Africa is totally different. Uh, you see a lot of complacency. You see a lot of equipment failures uh, on, on some of these rig jobs. Big thing nowadays and what's coming is, is, you know, we just had a downturn. And, you know, a lot of experience. And, and uh, there's been a brain drain, if you will, you know, leave the industry and you know now we're we're getting kids, and I got I got to remember at one time I was I was a kid too, you know. Yeah. And we're getting these kids that are just starting, and we're fast tracking them, and we're pushing them, and you know there's there's a lot of turnover. Um, you know, it's a lot of not everybody is cut out to do this kind of work, you know, and especially the, the rig guys, you know, twelve hours a day, fourteen whatever they work, fourteen twenty one days at a time. You know, traveling back and forth and living in man camps out in West Texas. You know, not everybody's geared to live like that. So there's, from as I understand, there's quite a bit of turnover and 
and trying to find people and, and not so much in the drilling industry but the the service industry as well you know the service guys you know i I heard a rumor that uh you know you can't get enough guys to to operate and do fracks you know and and uh so there there's definitely a, a personnel issue there um which uh which plays a, a huge important fact and, and you've lost a, a ton of experience you know guys get older i mean I hate to admit it, but you know I'm getting older too. You know I'm I'm, I'm still pretty fit, can still go pretty hard, but but you know nonetheless, I mean it, it, eventually you know it's gonna be it's gonna be my time to to step back. Luckily in the wealth control business, I think there's some 70, 80 year old guys that are that are still kind of catching jobs. And and the good thing about it, we need them. You know we don't need them to work. We need them to cuss us and point. You yeah, know I mean that's uh, knowledge. you know there's there's uh, you know that's it's. Uh, you know, having having got guys like that that have been around and, and that are aged to, uh, I mean, it's, it's invaluable. You know, they they throw rocks at you and they cuss you and tell you what you're doing wrong. And, and I mean, you know, there's there's just, I get that. You know, that's the way I learn. You know, I, I get that, and I can take some people the wrong way though in today's uh, day yeah, age. they probably would. <laughs> I hear a lot of these companies have little rooms that the HR keeps to watch videos and stuff, and I've I've heard they've had sensitivity training and and, and how to deal with people. Not not that I'm uh, a different there. world that you grew up in. Yeah, not not that I've ever participated in it, but I but I you know I've read about it on Twitter or something. <laughs> What's that rush like? You know, it's one thing to get that phone call, but what's that first rush like when you get onto that scene? Because again, for a lot of these places, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere, aren't you? Yeah, it, and it's it's kind of I, I got to say that the, the rush is not so much anymore now that I'm in the position that I'm in because okay. nowadays nowadays it's it's stepping on board or stepping on location and having to risk assess things on the fly and having to deal with the client, having to deal with the regulatory agency that shows, you know, a lot of a lot of times in these countries we go, you know, the, the regulatory agent is there before, we, you know, we show up. And I've had to sit on location and, and the local community's scared and upset and, you know, the cows are going to stop milking or, you know, you know, what whatever happens, you know. And and so a lot of times you kind of got to be a, a diplomat and, and, and kind of, you know, appease everybody and, and just kind of alleviate any anxiety that they have before we can even get there. And then you get on location and then you, you've got to go through, you know, look at everything. And in the meantime, you, you've got an engineer with you that that's going through and doing the CSI to seeing exactly what happened. But but the main thing is, you know, you got to get see what equipment you're going to have to bring in. you got to start digging water pits. You've got to. I mean, there's there's so many things. You know, you've got to find a place where all these guys live. You've got you got to be able to you know make sure that you're going to have food. You got to have security. A lot of times, you know, we we have a, we have a, a, an agreement with a security firm. You know, so a lot of these places we have to bring in our own security just to look after us. You know, so it's 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 uh, I hate to think of it as a job. It's it's a project, and, and you have to manage the project. And you know, there's there's three kind of clients in the world. There's there's the client that when you show up, they say, well, we, here it is. You know, we met, we messed it up, but here it is, fix it. And then you have the client that says, you know, you know, here it is. How can we help you fix it? And then you have the client that you know said, well, we you know we messed it up, so this is how you're going to fix it. You know, and that and that's really the one that you really, that's really the one that'll that'll make you beat your head on the wall at the hotel at night. You know, you made a mistake, and now you want to tell me how to fix it. You know, and and so. You, you've got to kind of strike a balance, and, and a lot of times I'm not really good at, at finding that balance. Uh, the, the the customer that wants to help you and and, and has their uh, contingency plan in place and their incident management team and, and and they're handling their end of it and supporting you. I mean it, that makes things just so much easier. And uh, and using their infrastructure that's already in place, other than have to build everything your own self or trying to fight an uphill battle with a client that wants to manage everything. You kind of alluded to no project and or issue looks the same but when you talk about you know needing security food camp the entire process and so like when this thing hits i mean it's it's an all hands on deck evolution what's kind of the average stay or what's kind of the average duration depending upon you know the severity how long will these last it it depends i i've been on some that were over 90 days i've been on some that were you know 40 42 you know six weeks you know and it it depends on the infrastructure and it depends on what's available and and so you're gonna be there a minute yeah and uh you know used to back back in the day we used to fly everything in an antenna but i don't think there's any of them flying anymore so you know cargo aircraft and 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 freight forwarders and 
you know, and, and actually having people, having an operator with a good blowout contingency plan, they've actually, you know, we do that, and that's one of our risk management services, but we, we actually work with it. We work with an operator in, in Eastern Europe to plan what would happen, how to move equipment, who has different roles and responsibilities, and, and, and who who tasks these roles, and, and they, they do, we, we put on a, an emergency response training for them every year, and, and we work with them. And, and those things right there are keys to days. And what I mean by that is, you know, if you have these things in place and you plan that the, these activities and, and who's, who does what and where's the closest airstrip, where's the trucks, who has the heavy equipment, and you have all these things in place, it not only makes my job a lot easier, but it's also the key to lowering your day rate and, and lowering the days that, that we have this problem because everything can be, can be managed, you know. It's a cost, and, and not many people will spend that cost, and, and, and I get it. But, you know, they think, you know, we're never going to have to have that. But the problem is when you, when you do have to have it and you don't have it in place, then, you know, it, it costs you time and money. Yeah. And, that, and that's what it's about. I mean, that's, that's one reason why we move so quick. That's one reason why we like to have things, know where equipment is in, in different places and, and, and work with freight forwarders that, that can move equipment for us really quickly. And, and uh, it's because time is money. And, uh, I mean, you're losing hydrocarbons out of your formation and you're spending money on day rate. And, you know, and of course, you know, the pollutants and everything else that's going on. And the faster that you can get in and safely get it done, and, you know, the better off it's going to be for everybody. Over these last 20 years, what for you continues to be the most exciting part about your job and what continues to be the most challenging part of your job? The most exciting part is not knowing where the call is going to come from next. Okay. And, and, and being, able to, uh, being able to respond effectively. You know, I, I think we as a group, we have a, we have a very effective response plan internally. You know, we know everybody. We speak. We we don't do conference calls and a bunch of emails. I mean, we we literally talk to each other on the phone. You know, weekly and, and uh, or chat each other or what's you know those those kind of things. We're, we're a really small group, and and that's what that's what I like. And and so you know, when time comes, I mean, it's it's just we're getting tickets and we're going, and everybody's kind of on the same page. You just drop what you're doing. And, How big is your crew? Typically, we'll take anywhere from, you know, depending upon the, the type of job. Uh, the, the last job I, I left, it was just me and an engineer. Uh, but typically, we'll, we'll run anywhere from, from uh, you know, say five to seven people. Okay. And you had that same, five, like you said, you had that same five to seven folks for a since, while Since now. we incorporated. Yeah. And, and we worked together, you know, with different companies in different places, you know, uh, around the world throughout throughout the years. And, and uh and we, we pretty well know each other and, okay. uh, and, and keep up. And, you know, some of the guys have retired and, uh, and from other jobs, and, and, uh, and they work for us, uh, you know, exclusively when we need them, which is, which is great. And, uh, you know, we just call them and say, okay, hey, we're, we're loading up and we're going over here. And said, fine, send me a ticket. And, you know, and that's, that's what uh, I think that's what, you know, makes us good. I mean, we're, we're, uh, we've worked with each other enough. We know each other's capability, you know. I have a project manager that knows how to how to manage a project where you know it keeps the client away from me and and if you know he the, the, he he uh, liaises with the client and and uh, you know if they need to tell me something he tells me if I need to tell the client something I go through him and and uh, you know I focus on the hot zone uh, on the well or, or or wherever we're working at the time and and uh, you know so so he's managing that part and doing the paperwork and answering emails which I'm not a big fan of and. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I'll swing a hammer and twist a pipe wrench, but I'm not real big on turning You know, I just got a new laptop. I still hadn't figured out how to turn it on. I think I'll fix it and take it back to Best Buy. Um, there's a button got to be somewhere, but I hadn't found it yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've worked across the globe. You've lived across the globe. Like I said, spent the last, uh, what, 15, 20 plus years in, in Indonesia, give or take. How was living abroad during COVID? You know, I got, I got two calls during COVID. The first one was uh, on the island of Java, which is an island over from Bali. You, I, you can go in between them on a ferry, and they had they had closed Bali for uh, any for for any personnel movements, and the only only thing coming in and out was cargo, food, and and, and those kind of things. And uh, so I, I got a call and, and offered to help my client with the, they had a blowout, and I offered to help them. And I said, well, I'm just going to drive over there. 
and uh, it was about a five or six hour drive from home. And I said, I'll just drive over there and have anything else to do. We'd lock down anyway. And uh, they, uh, I asked for a police escort getting across the ferry and, uh, and a police escort back. That's all, all I asked for. And it couldn't be arranged. They, they weren't allowing anybody. And uh, so I ended up going back home and working with a client over the phone. The other one was, uh, was a fire in West Africa. This was before the vaccines and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and literally, you could not, even for an emergency, you could not get into the country because the country was closed to COVID, even for, for me and, and uh, three or four guys to go over and, and work on this well. They were not going to be able to get us in the country. It, it was, the, you know, for everybody. I mean, it, it was the weirdest, the weirdest time operationally. Um, I spoke to one of our customers one time, and he said his daily operating rate for his offshore drilling operation had gone up $300,000 a day due to the COVID protocols during COVID time. So, you know, it, there, was, there was a lot of cost, and, you know, and you, had, you had people coming into work, and they had to do 14 days in quarantine, and they went offshore for 28 days, and then they got to go home for two weeks, and then they had to go back quarantine. I mean, it was... The, the, the sheer dynamic of the whole thing and how it was playing out and guys were moving around the country and having to, you know, okay, well, we're going to work 56 days and then you get to go home for 14 days and part of your 56 days you're you're living in a camp and you're not getting paid day rate because you're in quarantine and we're paying for the quarantine. And, and uh, you know, been on, been on a few jobs uh, down in Australia and they had a, a stringent protocol and that, that cost even was like you know gonna be it was gonna cost me and another guy like five thousand dollars to go down and, and look at some of these wells and and uh, so I, bu- I put it into the quotation and, and the operator got all upset because I was building the cost of uh, of the quarantine into the quotation and I thought well you know who's gonna pay for this I mean you know I had it I had a day rate and, and the cost of it. I mean, we're, we're, we're not just going to go down and sit, sit in quarantine for two weeks for free and then have to pay for it. And I yeah. Said, and he said, we can't make us do it. And so, you know, so the, the, the governments in, in, around the world, you know, everybody was on a different page and had right. a different, there was, there was, there was nothing that was, uh, you know, uh, standardized anywhere, any country around the world. And uh, so, you know, we, we didn't we didn't travel and uh, not that we were afraid to, but, you know, we tried, but it, it just got to where it was just, you know, nobody was doing anything anyway. And, and you know, we, we did some risk management stuff, you know, remotely and uh, we were able to put together a couple of equipment packages for some for a client and was able to sell some equipment and, uh, you know, which was fine for us. I mean, uh, everybody was was locked down. All their kids were in school and online. And, and so, you know, it was just. It was a good time to be home and not globetrotting. I'll put it that way. Not not that we were afraid of the virus or whatever. It was just, you know, that was just kind of a kind of a good time to be home. And so it gave you an opportunity to come back to to Texas, spend some time with your family, spend some time with your mom, which, I, from what I understand, was probably the most time you got to got to spend with her in in quite some time. You crossed paths with Sarah Stogner, who you know, intertwined with, with her campaign. You became the wheel man for that. Going from well control specialist globally to now you're crisscrossing the state of Texas with one of the more polarizing candidates that we've seen in the state of Texas for quite some time. I did this job in West Africa and, and, and I came home uh, in November and was going to stay through, uh, through the first part of December and then got COVID locked out. Couldn't get back into Indonesia and, and ended up staying through December and had planned to, to get home after the first year of this year. Uh, in the meantime, they had the big the big blowout in Crane, and, and the railroad commission didn't want to accept, didn't want to take the well. And, and we had a we have a mutual friend who's an engineer, and uh, he had them call me, and I wouldn't do anything just then. And I said, sure, I'll come out and look at it. And uh, you know, eventually, the railroad commission took it over, and and and. Uh, so, you know, got looked at, but I, but I ended up, I, I just had to see it. And I ended up going out and looking around that ranch and, and I, I just saw things, you know, I, I had heard about it. I had been, I had been following the, the, the ranch, you know, since they had their first blowout June last year. And, uh, and I had been following it remotely through our, through our mutual friend in, in reading reports and in the, the engineering data and, and, and they had they had filled me in and 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 I was on board with with what was going on but it didn't really it didn't really hit home to you to you driving around out there and you see these these wells that they got 
you know pumping units on them and, and they're, you know they're, they're getting salt water out of the out of the stuffing box or you know they're these water wells that are flowing you know i mean they're they're, they're water wells they're 300 foot deep and you know some of them got crude oil in them you know at 300 feet and and not just a little skim of crude oil you know there's there's you know you know, foot and a half, two foot of crude oil on top of these, some of these water wells, and, and it, man, it, it just really kind of hit home that there's more going on underground than, than than you know what anybody was wanting to admit to. After that, you know, I met with with Sarge Summers, who who also uh, Sarge and I met through a, through a social media, and, and we, he and I had a breakfast one morning, and then shortly after that, you know, he was tragically killed in a car wreck. And and I had I had known known Sarah and, and Ashley, you know, of course from the ranch and. and Sarah wanted to to learn about some wellhead configurations and some you know and some things and some well integrity stuff and I said okay I said well here's the deal she was going down to South Texas on a on a campaign deal down on the border and I said look you probably shouldn't be going down there by yourself and so short of time since Sarge got killed and and I said I'll tell you what we'll do I said I'll, I'll drive you down there we'll go out to the ranch we'll put on a kind of a well integrity school and then uh, then I'll I'll fly back to Houston and I was supposed to be going to Slovakia. So that job, my Slovakia job got canceled, and then I had another job in West Africa that was up, and it got postponed to June. And so I ended up having two weeks, and I said, well, I got nothing else to do. So we took off on the campaign trail. And, uh, and I, I met some fantastic people that really want to do good for the citizens in the state of Texas, and they never got a shot. And and they were running their hearts out, and, and, and they were overly qualified for the state jobs that they were running for there was you know a couple of land commissioner people a couple of ag people and 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 i mean some really good people that had their hearts in the right place and uh you know i I got really jaded with texas politics you know it's uh, i'm sixth generation texas and 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 being around that kind of mess and 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 seeing just the the, the sheer politics of it. I mean, you might as well call Austin, Washington, D.C. because the same slimy bastards in Austin are doing the same slimy shit in Washington, D.C. And and this is me having to live in overseas. And, and here I am, you know, it, it, my swimming pool has the state of Texas in it in Bali. You know, they, they call my house the Republic of Texas Embassy Indonesia, you know, and, and there's Texas flag hanging in my house, and 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 I got I got real disgusted with what I saw out there. I said, not only that, but you know, but before I started driving, I, I sat in on a on a hearing uh, on a railroad commission hearing, and you talk about people playing with a loaded deck, and you've got a railroad commission, uh, what do they call them, an administrative whatever, he's the judge, and then you've got the railroad commission attorney. Which I'm not real sure, but I'm I'm pretty sure that he did not pass the bar. I'm, I, this guy he may have tripped over it, but I don't think he passed the bar. And then you've got an operational guy that that actually went and threatened to uh, he uh, he he got before the railroad commission at another hearing and he, on this uh, Beamer Lake deal, and he he threatened to he said I'm trying to fix that problem. He was gonna. Let the railroad. He was going to order the railroad commission to fix this well, and then he was going to uh, file a case against the landowner uh, with the attorney general to recuperate their cost. And so you've got this guy thrown in there, and then you've got the oil company that was at this hearing and, and their attorney, and uh, and then you've got the jury that's the railroad commission, and then you've got a landowner and their and their and their lawyer. And I have never seen a citizen of the ta- state of Texas get screwed over so bad by people that they're paying to look after their their interest and their yeah. behalf. And it, it was shocking. So after that, you know, that I, I stayed on I stayed on the campaign and, and like I said, there there were some really, really, really good people that, that deserve to be in these positions in Austin and looking after the people of Texas. But it, it's politics here to me is is, is like a fraternity. So you you've got the you got the upper echelon guys and then you've got the lower echelon guys and and they're the ones that are that are you know recruiting pledges and putting on the parties and raising the money and and, and all this and 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 then you've got the voters and and the voters they're they're never going to they're never going to get in the fraternity or the sorority to 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 keep it uh, you know gender neutral but they're never going to be a part of the club and they're the voters and these people are telling them who to vote for and I mean good God you voted for somebody that's under indictment. I mean, how how silly is that? 
And, uh, you know, you, you voted for a railroad commissioner that, that has no oil and gas experience. And by the way, he shook my hand like a clammy-handed undertaker, you know. And, and he talks about morals and he talks about ethics, but he's taking bribes. And, and uh, you know, he's talking about abortions. I mean, I, I've been in the oil field for 32 years. I've never seen an abortion performed in the oil field. So I don't know what, you know, an oil and gas regulator, you know, has to do with that. You know, and then I get involved with the with the Beamer Lake deal, and uh, and I see that the the way that that the railroad commission uh, treated the uh, the attorney that the that the uh, water conservation district sent to give a report, and uh, and I mean I, I was I was in Odessa and I was watching it on my phone, and I could not believe the way that the railroad commissioners berated that that young man, and it, I mean it, it upset me, so. You know that that's that's how I got into it. I'm I'm jaded about it. I'm I'm pissed off about it. I, I can't I can't believe that that voters would drink the Kool Aid to to keep the establishment. Uh, I just read where uh, where they're going to get to you know where they're going to plug and abandon 800 wells and and they got 25 million dollars for it or to plug 800. Anyway, I did the math. It's 31,500 dollars a well. You know. And they're going to do 800 of them. Well, of course, they're going to do the easy ones. You know, they're yeah. they're not going to look at the ones that 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 I'm looking at that that are difficult that are that are going to cost quite a bit of money and and uh, going to take some some expertise and some thinking outside the box. You know, and and uh, you know they're just going to plug them to get their numbers up and so they can keep getting more money and and it's going to go lower bidder and you know and there's there's not going to be there's not going to be any oversight. They'll say there's oversight, but there's there's wells out there that that. Uh, or allegedly plug and abandon that I've found, you know, they got oil at 80 feet. You know, I've actually, I've actually bailed it, bailed uh, crude oil at, and, and oil's at 80 feet. And you look what does that mean? Explain to the folks at home that, what, what does that mean when you say you're, you're finding oil at 80 feet? There, there's some wells that have allegedly been plugged and abandoned as per the railroad commission, uh, the railroad commission records. I've been able to, to open them and enter these wells. Uh, uh, you know, they just got a valve on them. When you open a valve and I drop a you know a two foot plastic baler, it's got a little ball in it, and uh, dip it down in the well and, and hit fluid and uh, just let it fall and you can feel it. It'll fill up with fluid and then pull it up. There's crude oil in it at 80 feet. You know, and you okay? Maybe it's plugged on bottom, but where's this oil coming from? Shallow. There, there's water wells out there. Like I said, it's it's 300 foot deep. It's got two foot of crude oil on top of it. You know, I mean, where's this? Why is this coming from? You know near a freshwater aquifer, where's it coming? And, and nobody wants to talk about it, you know? And, and it's, it's not just, it's not just one, I'm, I'm, this is the only place that I've looked, and the, the only field that I've been looking in, but I, I'm, I'm sure it's rampant everywhere. You know, and it's not just a West Texas problem, it's a, there's a East Texas problem, there's a South Texas problem, you know? And, and Texas is drowning in water. And, uh, you know, the, the more they take out, the more they push in. And yeah. it's, it's gotta go somewhere. And uh, I mean, I, I don't have an answer for it. You know, there's there's a lot smarter people in the world that, that have talked uh, have talked about this problem and, and 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 have you know solutions. But but what appalls me is that you know the regulatory board that says that they're second only to God doesn't want to do anything about it. They use uh, rhetoric and and, uh, and fancy uh, social media postings, but uh, none of them are really doing anything about it. Where does the severity of, of what you've seen in the state of Texas, your home state that you love and the, the, the industry that you love and, and, and has supported you and your family for generations, where does it stand up compared to some of the worst situations you've seen across the world? You know, and I, I made a, a, a social media post when, it, when last year when I, or earlier this year when I, when I first went out there, you know, and, and I said that Nigeria is doing a better job, and they are. You know, they actually, my last trip there, they're, they're actually, the people are tired of polluted mangroves. They're, they're tired of pipelines blowing up in their villages. They're, they're, they're tired of the mess and the filth. And, 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 and the, the, the good thing about it, you know, the, the, the younger Nigerians are, 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 are getting educated and, 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 you know, they're, they're going to school in the UK and they're coming over here and going to school and they're, they're taking what they're learning and they're, and they're going back home and, and they're really starting to hold some of these people accountable. For I like this Jaime Ruiz kid that's running, and, and, I, and I'll tell you why. He, he called me I, and, uh, a few weeks ago, and he, he wants to get dirty. He wants to learn. You know, I, I sat with him and, and, uh, and his dad. They, they were at a forum in Odessa, thinking maybe back in February, 
And, uh, you know, he sat up there. He's, he's just out of school, has no industry experience. And he sat up there with, with Sarah Stogner and... and uh, Wayne? No. Wayne, Wayne, didn't, Wayne didn't show up that day. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Wayne didn't have any gas money, I guess. Uh, he, he showed up there with Dwayne Tipton and Sarah Stogner, okay. who were industry experts. And then there was uh, the Tom fellow. And they uh, and and he got up and he admitted he said man I don't know nothing about oil and gas he said but I'm willing to put the people in place that do yeah. so they can ha- and man I'm gonna tell you what that's gold yeah you know that anybody that tells me I don't know nothing but you know I'm I'm willing to, to help put something to, you know put some people together that do know to to help us out you know that's gold so so when the kid contacted me here a while back and and uh, and said he wants to get dirty I said I'm fixing to take him out there and get him dirty I'm gonna. I'm gonna get him educated. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach him a little bit about what I know, you know, and uh, and show him around a bit, you know. So I, ha- I have no problem putting any kind of support behind him because he wants to know. Yeah. And you know, for him, it's not just about fundraising and and you know, and making the same speech at every place he goes, and and uh, you know, the, he he wants to get dirty. So you know, I'm, I'm gonna get him dirty, and I'm gonna wish him luck, and and uh, you know, I hope he makes a good showing. You know, unfortunately, the the political machine is, is too strong, and, and uh, you know, he's got a he's got a long road to hope. But you know, I'm I'm gonna help him every chance I get, just because you know, I believe people like that. That when your heart's in the right place and you're trying to do the right thing, you know, those are the people that I don't want to support. You know, career politicians and, you know, another one living off daddy's money and, and you know, with, with other political aspirations. I mean, shit, man, that's how we all got in this mess to start with. Unfortunately, it, it's so difficult and, and the cost involved in running an election and, and, and you know, fuck, you know, I got some of it. I had 28,000 miles when I started, you know, like February 10th, you know, and, and I, I put, put 28,000 miles on a car driving around Texas. I mean, that'll wear somebody out. And, you know. And that was what, two, three months? Yeah, and that was, that was from February 10th to the, uh, to the uh, runoff election day on the 25th of May. Yeah. You know, there. We, we moved, we moved a lot. We, so, we went. so just shy of three months, not even, damn near 10,000 miles a month. Yeah, yeah, I would, that, that would be, you know, that's a good estimate. And, uh, you know, and that's that's from the very top of the Panhandle down to Brownsville. And, and, uh, <laughs> For people that don't know, I mean, you know, there, there's no short trips in Texas. No, we, we left, uh, <laughs> we left uh, El Paso at 4.30 one morning and we're back and made three stops in San Antonio and we're back in Houston at 10 o'clock at night. Yeah, I mean, and and then, you know, it was up and gone the next day up to Dallas. So, you know, these are the and and this is that's that's a lot of work to be put into a campaign and, and the cost involved and, and everything else. Especially when you when you don't have the political machine behind you, you know. And yeah. that's 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 it's it's sad that it's that it's come to that, you know. As many jobs as you've done across the globe, how many jobs before? This latest run that you did, you know, uh, from from November to where you know to, to to now, and obviously you're back in Texas. But before this, how many jobs had you done in the state of Texas? Uh, very, very. Not few. including your reference. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very <laughs> few. And and like I said, I, you know, I, I worked on a, I worked on a rig in East Texas. You know, while I was going to school, and I drove, you know, vacuum trucks, hauling salt water at night, setting frack tanks, and 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 those kind of deals. But I, I I've done. You know, I, I maybe did three jobs in the Gulf. Very, very little. I spent very little time. Like I said, I, I was, I was hired on snubbing, and five weeks later, I was on an airplane. You know, yeah. and uh, flying up to Chicago O'Hare and got lost in the airport. You know, and thought I'd never see my mom again. So <laughs> that's a big air. That's a big airport for a twenty-four year old from East Texas. <laughs> You know, there, 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 there's quite a lot, and and more especially on this integrity stuff, and and uh, you know, how do you go about doing it? I mean, I, 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 I can tell you how to go about doing the work, but but how do you get people to to look at it and realize it's a problem and accept it's a problem? You know, I usually I usually use this as a, as a guide. You know, there's there's five uh, five stages of well control. You know, there's there's the anger phase where everybody gets mad that you have the problem, and then and then there's you know the denial phase where it's, you know it's not that bad, it's not that bad, we can fix it, you know. And there's there's the grief phase when you have to call me and I, and I quote you a prize, 
And then there's an acceptance phase where, you know, you, the work starts to get done and then there's the recovery. And, uh, you know, I, I still think, you know, we're still in, in the denial phase here. Yeah. And the, the, the thing is that this, these older, you know, mature wells and, uh, they're, that have, you know, outlived their, their design uh, lifespan, they're not going to get any better. You know, you can't go lay hands on them and, and you know, put the scale back on the outside of these casing strings and, and make, them, make them whole again. And, uh, and this is going to continue to be a problem for, for, for a long time. How do you get people to realize that this is going to be a problem? You know, I don't know. I, I really think there's some great operators out there that do a fantastic job. And what few guys that I've met here in the States, you know, they, they really want to do a fantastic job and they're, and they're really on board with, with, with doing the right thing. Uh, but, but I, I think there's just a lot of people that are out of sight, out of mind, and, uh, and you know we'll cross that bridge when it, when we come to it. I know that there's a lot of national oil companies overseas that that actually have an you know an integrity program and an integrity team, and and they are you know religiously going through their wells and inspecting them you know periodically every two or three years depending on what what program they have. I recently did a did kind of a, a proposal for a company that, that in Chad that you know needs to have some some integrity uh some wells looked at i think it's you know 200 something wells that need looked at check yeah. for integrity you know so there's there's people that are there, there there's some operators that are really uh really getting a jump on this and, and realizing that it's, it's cheaper now to start looking into these kind of things than than it is to uh wait for something to happen and uh the, you know it's, it's not so much the cost anymore but it's you know more about reputation and then than having to deal with a government entity that, that, that regulates you, you know, uh, and I think that's, uh, that's a huge part of staying on top of this stuff. Could you see yourself doing more in the state of Texas and, and working on well integrity to kind of get things up to snuff here in your home state? Oh, I'd love to. And, and like I said, what I, I kind of alluded to earlier, you know, I've been working with a couple of uh, nonprofit groups working on some of these, some of these orphan wells and it, you know, it's, it's just been strictly volunteer and, uh, and lending my expertise and, and, and my back and and, uh, and and getting involved, you know, just kind of passive. But instead of pacing the floor waiting on the next job, it just kind of you know, idle hands or a devil's workshop, you know. So it oh, that goes. keeps me out of the, keeps me out of the beer joint at night. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you know, there's there's some great nonprofit organizations that are they're doing some fabulous work and, and they're raising money to to you know to to buy things you know that to to work on some of these orphan problems. And, and uh, so I'm lending some expertise and, and things. And if, you know, if, if something, if some, if some well integrity work comes up and, and I'm happy to talk to people about it. Uh, like I said, I, you know, I love Texas and, and there's a lot to be done here. There's, there's quite a bit of competition here and, and some well-established companies with some fantastic guys that work for them. And, and uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of years of experience that, that are already here. So, yeah. you know, for, for me to come over here and, 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 you know, try to compete with them would, would be, would be a little difficult just because, you know, they, they, they've already got everything here. And, but, but our main focus is still overseas and the places that nobody else wants to go working for the people that nobody else wants to work for doing the things that nobody else wants to do. And, and that's, that's kind of my forte that, you know, I, I, I like it, you know, I, I like to go to the places that nobody's ever heard of before. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it keeps us busy. Um, and, you know, and we, we all make it, we all make a good living from it. Uh, and, and then again, you know, we're, we're once, a, I, I, I don't care nothing about working 300 plus days, days a year again. Oil and gas, as, as, as I've talked to folks, has a messaging problem, right? Has a branding problem because again, for everything we do that requires oil and gas, and it's not going away anytime soon. Look what's going on again, as you see uh, in other parts of the world when they've tried to phase it out too quickly. From where Hawk Dunlap sits, what are some of the things you would suggest or that you would like to see the oil and gas industry do differently as we move towards this energy, as we move through this energy transition to where, again, maybe it's not so adversarial and we can understand that, look, it's going to take a little bit of everything energy-wise to get where we want to go. Oh, I, I'm all for everything, you know, solar and wind and, and, but like I said, we're, we're not, uh, 
we're not going to phase out, you know, hydrocarbons anytime soon, you know. And I, I think I remember, and don't quote me, I was maybe in the in the late 90s, T. Boone Pickens came out and said, that's it, we're at the bottom of the bucket. He went and bought a bunch of windmills out in the Panhandle, and then about four or five years later, he's leasing property and bringing in drilling rigs again, you know. And, uh, and you know, so I don't think we're, we're never going to get to the bottom of the bucket. There's places we hadn't looked yet. There's challenges. I mean, you know, I can, I can remember the old guys telling us about the Delaware play when, you know, back in the 90s. And, and it's, you know, not in our lifetime, but, you know, at some time that, that's, that's going to be uh, – that's going to be a huge discovery. You know, we just we just didn't have the technology back in the '90s and '80s and '90s to drill it, and and look at us now. You know, so we're, there's going to be more and more places like that. You know, I, I'm I'm a big fan. We need everything that we that we can get. I just I like you said. I, I just don't think oil and gas really highlights the good things that they do. There are operators that I know of that I've heard about that are actually trying to uh, eliminate some of their methane leaks on some of their wells, and they're actually taking a proactive role to to trying to police up this stuff before they're made to do it and and these things need to be highlighted you know so you only see what we do when it's reported in a negative light in in the media or on social media and and there's people out there that are doing fantastic work that are actually cleaning up their messes that are actually you know repairing some of these wrongs and we're, we're not spotlighting them and they're not spotlighting themselves, okay. you know, and they're, they're, and, and that's, you know, I think in the industry that's, you know, if you spotlight yourself, they look at, they look upon you as, as, as being arrogant and, uh, and you know, they, they try to keep it as low key. And, and Does that even matter to social media yeah, I mean, world anymore? Yeah. I mean, what, yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, like I said, I, I'm talking to you. It's the first time I've ever talked about, you know, what I do, just, just for the plain fact that, you know, we just, we just don't talk about it. We just go do it and we come back. And, 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 I, and I think that's a lot of things in industries like that. And we just, we go out and we do a fantastic job. We do what needs to be done and we get home safe. And, you know, somebody said, well, why don't you do it? Because that's what we do. Well, what do we need to tell anybody about? But the, but the problem with that is, the the people that are spending all this negative energy toward the oil and gas business, they're not able to see the good things that you're doing, and and being able to showcase, hey, look, we had this problem, we went, we spent this amount of money, and we fixed the problem, and, and now here's where we are right now. It's 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 showing it's not only showing progress, but it's 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 a proactive approach to 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 fixing these things that inevitably are going to have to be fixed anyway. And uh, I mean, it, they're not going to go away. And and these these people that are that are shouting that are that are spewing spewing all this garbage on the oil and gas industry, they're not going away either. So you're going to have to fight fire with fire. And you got to show them, hey, look, okay, you can talk about us about this, but look, this is what we've done today. And you know, I'm sorry we can't fix everything overnight, but you know, oil and gas companies are in the business too, and and they've got to, they've got to report to shareholders and bosses and and you know and. And and they've got to make money, and but they you know they're also starting to spend a little money to start cleaning up some of their stuff. You know I've, I've been distant from from the United States for a long time, and, and so I've been meeting a lot of new people later, uh, lately, and, and there's some really really great and experienced people. Do 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 they want to go do what I do? I I, I don't know. I I know that in in the well control business as of now, we have a secession issue. You know, we, we don't really have any, any young people coming up that, that I, I mean, gosh, I, I know, you know, personally in, in our company, uh, uh, we have a, we have a couple of, you know, 40 year olds, but that's, that's not really young, right? So, you don't know, <laughs> you know, and you know, we, we don't, we don't have any 20 year old kids that, you know, started on a workover rig or, you know, cleaning the shop floor, you know, we don't have any of those. And, you know, eventually we're going to, we're going to have to look at, at some of these people and, yeah. and, uh. You know, what was it? The football coach that used to do the recruiting up in Arkansas said he he drive through a farm and they were plowing and, and he'd ask for direction. If they picked the plow up and pointed with the plow, that's who he recruited, right? Because if they, if they left the plow on the ground, pour with their finger, they knew it wasn't going to work out. I mean, we need some plow pointers. You know, we need some guys that are that are, uh, you know, have a bit of a work ethic that that are not just so gung ho and, and because this is not really a business that you that you want to. You want to go into and uh, and, and and be all gung ho, it, it gets you killed. And uh, like I said, I, I treat every well like that I look at like it's going to be the one to kill me. And uh, so, you know, you want some hard workers. You want some some people with some work ethic and and uh, with a good head on their shoulders and 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 that can handle the 
the the workload and and the, the long hours and away from away from home um, and uh, but that you know can also think their way through through some problems and and and, and solve and that listen and and that's the thing you know one thing you know you, you have somebody that, that tells you they know everything and they've been there and they've done that you know those, those are the guys that you really kind of got to watch with both eyes you know and uh, because you know th- those are the people that are, that are going to get you get you in a lot of trouble and uh, but but a guy that comes in and, and just uh, you know it's kind of humble and willing to learn you know like Jaime Ruiz you know uh, like like you know I can I can do something with somebody like that you know I, I may not I may not be able to make them uh, you know have enough time with them to to get them all up to speed in the short of time that I, that I have him but you know those, those are the people that you enjoy want to be around those are you know people that that are teachable yeah and uh, and and you know case in point you know I worked with with some young engineers in Malaysia one time and they were working through a problem and. And I, and I realized that they didn't really need my services, that they could use a different route and we saved them a bunch of money and they were happy. And you know, I said, you know, what did, what did you, what did you tell them? Why did, you know, why did you decline to work? I said, I didn't decline to work. I, I found them a, a better solution. They said, well, why? We're not making any money off of us. Eh, we might not now, but those young guys in about 10 or 15 years are going to be the ones calling the shots and they're going to be calling us out when they have some real money projects. So. You know, when you take people like that, you treat them like that, you know, those those are the people that are going to be the future of this industry. Thank you so much for that, Hawk Dunlap. You can catch all of the Power Connect episodes over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and over the website, thepowerconnect.net. Like I said, be sure to connect with us over on LinkedIn, Fred Davis, and or the Power Connect. Hell, connect with them both. You will be glad that you did. Also, too, you can reach out to us by email, fred at thepowerconnect.net, if you'd like to learn more about the program and or be a guest on the program. Want to thank everybody for tuning in, as always. Thank you guys so much for following the show. Without you doing what you do, we couldn't do what we do. This has been the Power Connect Podcast, connecting the energy transition one conversation at a time. Wake up, all the builders, time to build a new land.